Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the life cycle of stuff. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. And I'm going to talk about where did Radio Veronica go? So many of our listeners in North America have probably never heard of Radio Veronica. It's possible you have if you're um, involved in any kind of radio hobby. However, our sprinkling of listeners we have in Sweden and the UK may be more likely to have heard or may be old enough to have originally listened to the Dutch radio station that was anchored in the North Sea and broadcast from 1960 to 1974. So it was about 14 years that Radio Veronica broadcast. And the reason I'm talking about this is I heard about Radio Veronica from my brother-in-law and his partner this past weekend when I was in Chicago. And yes, Chicago is cold. (laughs) It was different than North Carolina. We were watching an online streaming cast of a Dutch show called Nachtklub. Uh, and it was kind of like VH1 with music videos, but there were music videos like all the way back to the 60s. And there were a lot of the songs like I didn't even know there were music videos for these. And yeah, I, it, I it really cool. truly thought it was like 1980 was when it really started. Yeah, it was really it's various. It was similar to VH1. It was very cool. And a picture like between the music videos A picture of an anchored ship would come up with the name Veronica painted on its side. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And then my husband said, is that after the pirate radio station that was on the ship? And his brother was like, oh, yeah. I was like, pirate radio station? What? (laughs) I've loved pirate radio stations ever since Christian Slater was in Pump Up the Volume. This is still one of my favorite movies. (laughs) So I was instantly like, oh, yes, I need to know more. So when I looked it up, I found that it was actually a pretty well-loved radio station in the Netherlands. It was more of an India radio station set up by private uh, businesses and retailers to sell radio receivers, but was actually also an alternative to the state licensed stations in the Netherlands. So you you needed a license at the time in the Netherlands. The people that started it announced its call letters originally as V-R-O-N. I don't know what they are in Dutch, but the name was later changed to Radio Veronica after a children's poem called The Black Sheep Named Veronica. So it's named after a little black sheep named Veronica. Aww. Yeah. (laughs) It ended up becoming, as I said, one of the most popular radio stations in the Netherlands, which surprised absolutely everyone involved because... Initially, they had a hard time selling advertising time because they were a pirate radio station. But they did, actually. They were very successful. So it was, originally, Radio Veronica was on a light ship named the Borken Rift that was anchored in the North Sea off the coast of the Netherlands. And in 1964, it actually changed ships to the Noderni because the Noderni, Norderni, I think it's Norderni, with a better antenna and better anchor, so it would stay anchored correctly, I guess. The Borkum Rift was kind of floating around a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) That ship took over broadcasting in the single in 64, and Borkum Rift was scrapped. So 
What is a pirate story without some piracy? Well, in 1970, Radio Veronica actually got some competition. A ship named the Mebo 2 was anchored off the Dutch coast in 1970. The ship was owned by two Swiss businessmen and broadcast the radio station Radio Nordsee. Radio Nordsee had a higher band AM antenna as well as could do FM and shortwave. And this really worried the Radio Veronica staff because they thought maybe they would lose their audience and it would interfere with their station. So they had a solution to pay Radio Nordsee, or as it as uh, no Radio Nordsee um, International, R&I for short, not to broadcast for two months. So they paid them for two months not to broadcast. During these two months, Radio Veronica staff boarded and took over the Radio Nordsee ship, just like pirates do. <laughs> <laughs> the R&I people, the Radio Norte people, became upset with the arrangement, as would I, and tried to yeah. end the contract not to broadcast when the two months were up. However, Radio Veronica staff were dicks and claimed that they could renew the contract whenever they liked. So eventually, the Radio <laughs> Veronica staff was rousted out and an R&I captain was placed back in command. So they were back to our only R&I people. Radio Veronica then sued for breach of contract and and R&I won because they claimed that the Mebo, the boat that Radio Nordsea was on, had been sabotaged by the Veronica staff. So this was in February of 1971. So in May of 1971, three men uh, from a small dinghy boarded the, boarded the Mebo uh, and set it on fire. <gasps> <laughs> the crew was rescued and the fire was put out, but five people from the Radio Veronica staff were later charged and sentenced to a year in prison. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so maybe, I mean, go ahead. Arson is a big deal. <laughs> and the ship was fine, but still, they set it on fire. It was yeah. not cool. So may and and because of this drama, the Dutch government started to like really actually take pirate radio stations seriously. So they started to work on legis legislation against piracy. This caused Radio Veronica and Radio Nordsee staff to behave because they decided to kind of band together as well as they could. Later, that in 1972, after all this drama. They actually got a new pirate radio station boat neighbor named Mi Amigo that broadcast Radio Caroline. And Radio Caroline was actually anchored in between the two ships. And it broadcast English programs because it was, it was more focused on an audience in the UK. Mm -hmm. And apparently Radio Caroline was actually the more popular and ran longer than these two ships, R&I and Veronica. But anyway, she came after R&I and Veronica, but she was more popular. Maybe because she let well enough alone and didn't start lighting things on fire. Or... <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so, of course, there are shipwrecks in this story. In 1973, the Nordney, the, the Radio Veronica ship, lost part of its anchor during a storm because it, it's in the North Sea. 
and was shipwrecked on Chev. I can't say this right. I should have asked um, my husband's family how to say this. Sheveningen Beach, just before it was supposed to have a rally broadcast against the new Dutch anti-piracy legislation. So they were going to have a rally broadcast. Uh, I think all ships were going to do that. And, but the Norderney actually ran ashore. And the ship couldn't be fixed in time for the rally broadcast. So Radio Caroline, the Mi Amigo ship, offered to help. Aww. Yeah, it was very nice of them. The, the Mi Amigo, the Radio Caroline staff, and the Veronica staff worked together and broadcast both Radio Caroline and Radio Veronica until the no Derny was fixed. Very nice of them. The R&I staff offered to help, but radio care, uh, but the Radio Veronica staff were like, um, no. <laughs> 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 they still had some bad blood between them, apparently. They are like, I see you there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was nice of them to offer, considering the staff had set the boat on fire the year before. <laughs> So, but despite all the rallying against the anti-piracy, uh, even the rivals, and even all the rivals coming together to stop it, the Netherlands passed the anti-radio piracy legislation that went into effect on September 1974. The Radio Veronica staff decided to end their broadcast on August 31st, 1974. R&I, its major rival, also decided to close up the same day. However... Mi Amigo and Radio Carolyn staff decided to continue broadcasting, but uh, decided to re-anchor out of Dutch waters so that they wouldn't be raided by the Dutch government. Fair enough. <laughs> what was with so, the second boat just doing everything that Radio Veronica did? My guess is that they saw that Radio Veronica was successful, and so they pretty much decided to do the same thing. R and I actually did um, German and English programs and then did some Dutch. Radio Veronica was actually Dutch and English. So, I mean, there was some Dutch and there was quite a bit of overlap, but I think they just saw that it was successful. Interesting. And decided to do the same thing. <laughs> Afterwards, some of the Veronica staff applied for a for real bona fide broadcasting license. And after a lot of bureaucracy he got one. They were housed on land this time, no boats, and are, are, were part of the Sky Radio Group. And the radio station is actually still popular. It has morphed into Radio 538, which is a reference to the original wavelength that Radio Veronica, the boat, actually broadcast on. However, like I said, you can also watch music videos from the Netherlands, um, the UK, and the United States old music uh, videos on Nachtclub, which references Radio Veronica, which is how I got started on the piracy. And that is all, you can look it all up online and listen to the streams, and you can watch Nachtclub, I believe, wow. online as well, because that's how we were watching it. Cool. Yeah, so... Radio Veronica, she's still around, but the boat is gone. She's very old. She was scrapped. But yeah, the radio station in a couple of different forms is still around. That's, <laughs> that's a heck of a story for pirate radio to actually turn to true piracy. Yeah, I was like, what is the story without actual piracy? And there was some, yes. <laughs> 
Like some for and real radio, piracy, really. Yeah. And Radio Caroline, as I said, was um, actually really popular. And I think she's morphed into a internet radio station now. She is no longer on a ship. I think it's uh, it was a satellite until 1990 is what I read. And of the three, she ended up being the most popular. And probably it seems because they were the nicest people. There's no piracy. They like, tried to help people. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it seems like. I may be wrong. But when I looked at a little bit up about Radio Caroline, it said she was the most popular pirate radio station. And, uh, radio Veronica was the beginning. I thought it was amazing. That is, that is an amazing story. <laughs> and my topic actually has a little bit to do with it, it mentions the North Sea of all things. That's cool. It's kind of funny, but I'm kind of on the other side of the Atlantic with my topic. So I'm going to talk about where things go in the Bermuda Triangle. It is both less and more mysterious than we've been led to believe. (laughs) So what is the Bermuda Triangle? It's a very, 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 very loosely defined area of the Atlantic Ocean, wherein it is assumed sometimes that an inordinate number of inexplicable air and sea accidents and disappearances happen. Uh... Another definition from the U.S. Navy Bermuda Triangle Frequently Asked Questions Memo from 1999. This is an imaginary area not recognized by the U.S. Board of Geographic Names. <laughs> so, <laughs> depending on who you talk to, depend, it really defines what the Bermuda Triangle is. The points of the triangle, the three points, were defined in 1964 by Vincent Gaddis in an article in the pulp magazine, Argosy, they are Miami, Florida, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and the island of Bermuda. Or... I didn't, I didn't know it was actually real. I thought it was just a story. It's, so it's technically a physical location that can be pointed to, but there are lots of other vertices that people have claimed some authors of Bermuda Triangle happenings have stretched it into the Gulf of Mexico. Some have stretched it all the way to the coast of Ireland. So it's the type of thing where... What? Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly something. <laughs> and so the area of the triangle ranges from 500,000 square miles to 1,510,000... 510,000 square miles, which is roughly roughly triple of the initial area. So why do we talk about the Bermuda Triangle? Because, you know, you were under the impression that it was kind of like just made up. And it's, the, it's, I keep finding these where there's just enough information for some things that are pretty weird to be moderately plausible, but there's also probably a reasonable explanation for them. Writings about the triangle originated with an article in the Miami Herald in 1950 about recent uh, ship losses, as well as articles in Fate magazine, which is a paranormal experience magazine, in 1952. Subsequent writings further define where the triangle was. Like I said, it was sort of formally defined in 1964. 
and they discuss possible explanations for the issues in the triangle. I actually was able to find in the Wayback Machine, so you know, archive.org, the actual 1960s article defining the area of the Bermuda Triangle. And it started with a, a, the sinking of a ship carrying molten sulfur out of Texas, which is not, A, not near the Bermuda Triangle, and also B, it's full of molten sulfur. Right. It probably just fell apart in the sea. <laughs> exactly. That's what I was thinking. I'm like, wow, that's got to be really hot. Yeah. So often discussions about the Bermuda Triangle in a paranormal or a uh, an extraterrestrial or some sort of uh, mythological explanation, they took place in pulpier writing settings. Like I saw someone cite a response from the editor of Playboy to a letter to the editor <laughs> about the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> so it's it's things like that. And I'm not trying to say that you should never read any of these. It's more like the journalistic rigors of a response to a letter to the editor from Playboy about the Bermuda Triangle may not be a definitive resource for information. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so why does this matter? Uh, there was a book written in 1974 called The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved by Larry... It's either... Kush or Kushki or Kuski, one of those three. I, it was probably an Ellis Island special, so I could even be coming up with the wrong pronunciation. A lot of the sources of the discussions of the Bermuda Triangle didn't follow up on the mysterious disappearances. And so if wreckage was later found that, and, and it could be explained why something wrecked or if the actual like crash never happened it was never really discussed it was not it was not like the person that wrote the letter to the editor to playboy wrote a follow-up later on saying never mind i was wrong this is what happened or you know in fate magazine because it was a paranormal experience magazine if the explanation is that the ship fell apart it's not a paranormal explanation so it's not part of their story purview a lot of these sources also just flat out ignored weather events at the time that were easily verifiable we have a lot of weather data going back a long time and most of the events in the bermuda triangle sort of started and i'm making air quotes but started becoming something people paid attention to in like early 1900s to world war ii oh interesting and we have weather data from well before that for and particularly for this area because it was a massive shipping area and also because one of the most rigorous i think uh, data sources for any information throughout time is weather people who record the weather meteorologists really care about recording the weather and they're gonna do it <laughs> so uh, a lot of these sources roped in crashes and sinking ships that weren't strictly within the triangle. Uh, one that was cited was the VA fog tanker that exploded near Texas. It was reported as a sort of spooky Bermuda triangle incident where the entire crew vanished, except for the dead captain clutching a cup of coffee in, in the cabin of the ship. 
What? But the the wreckage of the ship and the crew deceased in the water were photographed by the Coast Guard. Oh, wow. And while it is not irrational to be skeptical of military sources for information, because there are times where things are, you know, classified or whatever, there's more to it than just... It's not just Coast Guard resources or naval resources that are providing us this information. Uh, there's a an insurer called Lloyd's of London, and their maritime component doesn't bother to require higher insurance for activity in this area. So ships don't have to have higher insurance for sailing through the Bermuda Triangle. And it not only has not recorded a disproportionate number of incidents in the area, but it has explicitly stated there are not so they've looked into it. It's not even just, oh, we probably didn't. It's, no, we didn't at all. And Wow, okay. And I'm, oddly enough, more willing to trust the insurance agency on this data simply because they could make a lot more money if it were, <laughs> if they were lending it any credence. And if, Isn't that funny? Yeah. Even if, if an insurance company could make more money doing something and they don't, they have a good reason for it. Exactly. And the U.S. Coast Guard records are comparable to Lloyd's of London, and they indicate that the number of incidents in this area is actually kind of low for such a highly trafficked area. One of the major reasons that it's highly trafficked is because U.S. influence in the Caribbean has been escalating significantly since uh, the beginning of the 20th century. And with our control of Puerto Rican government and the sort of splitting up of the Florida Keys and then the British Virgin Islands and the U.S. Virgin Islands and all this stuff. You know, U.S. activity, oh, and the Bay of Pigs stuff and their issues with Cuba. U.S. activity uh, in this area has escalated as well as other countries' activity. Because, you know, when we show up, we're usually not alone in doing something. So it's a really active you know, hopping part of the world. In 2013, there was a study and the Worldwide Fund for Nature identified the world's 10 most dangerous waters for shipping and the Bermuda Triangle was not among them. So one thing that has been noted by Mr. Uh, Kushki, it's probably Kushki or Kuski, uh, is that people, just lay people, you, me, John Q. Public, are much more likely to read and lend credence to more sensational articles and then ignore or not read or not lend credence to the more well-researched, more rigorously sourced debunking. And that's been sort of a human behavior for a long time that we're not necessarily inclined to let the truth get in the way of a good story. (laughs) And it's, I mean, you can also consider that sometimes sources are considered untrustworthy. So it's a question of who do you trust? But you also have to question why do you trust Fate Magazine or a letter to the editor to Playboy more than the National Weather Service? Like, what does the National Weather Service get out of just reporting hurricane seasons and you thinking that it's not credible? (laughs) <laughs> you know, nobody got paid to write a letter to the editor to Playboy. Nobody got, I mean, I, th- I think you get paid to publish in, say, Fate magazine or the Argosy or things like that. But you're not, um, I mean, 
they seem like they were more for funsies with even maybe sort of, like I said at the beginning, a smack of truth to them or some credibility. Like these, I'm, uh, one thing that I probably should have started with is a lot of people are not contending that a lot of the incidents in the Bermuda Triangle happened. There are a lot of ships that have sunk there. There are a lot of area incidents that have happened there. It's a huge area with a lot of people in it all the time. So that's why. <laughs> uh, I can go through a list of incidents that are sort of noteworthy, and then I'll go through the sort of proposed explanations for them. Yes, I'm excited about this. And the list of incidents, I'm just going to be honest, I was not going to be able to come up with a better way to write the list of incidents than Wikipedia, the author of the Wikipedia page. So I'm not going to read you word for word everything in the Wikipedia page, but understand that very little of this does not come from Wikipedia right now, what I'm about to say. And I know a lot of people consider uh, Wikipedia to not be a very newsworthy source, but I actually really appreciate the rigor with which people tend to edit this stuff. And uh, like I said, I'm not going to come up with a better list. So... Yeah, and mine, I um, I had a few different websites I was looking at, but honestly, my list was based very much off of three different websites, and Wikipedia really had, uh, whoever wrote it obviously was involved mm -hmm. in Radio Veronica, so I, mean, I couldn't find any, like, any more or better um, list of stuff that happened, so I totally get it. Sometimes it's the best source, and... Sometimes the person, like, deeply involved in an incident mm -hmm. is actually the article. So that's cool. Yeah. There have been, let me count, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Around 14 plus very mysterious air travel issues and things ha that have happened since 1945 in the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, there was a disappearance of the U.S. Navy PBM-3S patrol seaplane. Basically, most of these stories are they lost radio contact, the Coast Guard or the Navy or whoever was responsible searched for them, and then they found nothing. And I'll explain the and then they found nothing uh, in, in my list of explanations or possible explanations. Uh, Flight 19, and this one was kind of, it's it's got its own Wikipedia article, but it's kind of, um, like, there's a lot of questions about this one. Flight 19, which was five TBF Avengers, so five different planes lost, were lost with 14 airmen. And then later the same day, the PBM Mariner was lost with 13 airmen, airmen while searching for Flight 19. Although... That's weird. Yeah, it is weird. Uh, one point that was not really well covered in, say, more sensational coverage of Flight 19 and what happened is that the weather was becoming stormy at the end of the incident. And then there's also that the Mariner had a history of explosions, like the model aircraft had a history of explosions due to vapor leaks when heavily loaded with fuel as it might have been on a potentially long search and rescue operation. Kind of like the molten sulfur-filled boat. Just, these are dangerous things to be doing. 
one other thing to mention is that we've got dates for air travel of 1945, 1945, 1947, 1948, 1948, 1949, 1956, 1965, 1965, lost contact. They aren't even all that mysterious. Some of the more mysterious ones include there was a crash between two planes. Let me find this. Oh yeah, the KC-135 Stratotankers in 1963. A pair of them collided and crashed in the Atlantic, 300 miles west of Bermuda. And then some people thought that there were two distinct crash sites, which would point perhaps to and a non-credible story from the official source of the U.S. Air Force. But there's a lot of research into, say, the unclassified version of the Air Force investigation from uh, Kuski's research, showing that this second crash site was eventually found to just be seaweed. So (laughs) (laughs) it's the type of thing where there was something that was assumed to be a second crash site. And so that was part of an initial report. So when someone grabs on to that fact and makes it irrefutable fact that you cannot then further investigate, then it becomes very mysterious and mysterious stories are appealing. So a lot of these air incidents particularly are considered disappearances uh, because they lost radio contact. I don't really know why people don't consider them, say, just a, a crash It's just kind of odd to me. But that's just sort of going through the list of flight incidents. And then incidents at sea have also been pretty common. Uh, In 1492, Christopher Columbus and the crew of the Santa Maria reported a sighting of unknown light. So even Christopher Columbus was part of the Bermuda Triangle mystery. Really? (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) And then there's issues of ships being lost in 1800, 1814, 1824, 1840, 1881. These are all just probably lost in a storm, which really sucks because a lot of people died. There's 90 people on board of one, 140 people in another, 14 in another. There's a story in 1840 of the ship Rosalie found abandoned except for a canary. But this is Aww. this was hard to verify that there was ever a ship uh, with a ship's, you know, a, a lot of times when ships were used for either military or for shipping, they'd have to log a manifest with wherever they were shipping out of, and then, uh, it, you know, it would be known what the crew was and what they were carrying. And it was difficult to find a Rosalie that would have been in that area at that time. Uh, there's possibility that was an, it was another ship that was just found empty and abandoning ship can be done for a lot of reasons and it doesn't necessarily mean that the crew's gone forever or got abducted by aliens and then they decided they didn't want the canary <laughs> it was not canary day on the alien ship <laughs> they didn't have room they had to take the whole crew they left the canary <laughs> there's the mystery of the ellen austin 
which probably was an actual ship. And there was a story that they found a, an empty ship and they put a crew on that ship to sail the vessel to port so they could claim it. And then it was either lost in a storm or was found again without a crew. And so, again, Lawrence uh, Kuski, the Bermuda Triangle mystery solved, he couldn't find any information of the alleged incident until 1943 in a book by Rupert Gould called The Stargazer Talks. So, (laughs) it exists. Or it existed, the Ellen Austin existed, but there's no discussion of what the other vessel was named. And so, who knows? And so, there's the possibility of the claim, they they traced it back to the possibility of a 1906 newspaper story claiming that the incident took place in 1891. But the 1906 story doesn't give a reference of where the story came from. They just tell the story. So who knows? One of the more famous shipping losses was the USS Cyclops. It is considered the single largest loss of life in the history of the U.S. Navy, not related to combat. Cyclops was carrying a full load of manganese ore with one engine out of action. And then the true the crew went missing with or the crew and the ship went missing without a trace. This was 309 people after they left Barbados. Let's talk about Cyclops' sister ships, the Proteus and the Nereus. They were both lost in the North Atlantic during World War II, transporting heavy loads of metallic ore, and they both fell apart. So, what's more logical about the USS Cyclops that a big ship? with an engine out, fell apart, just like its sister ships did, or that aliens stole a whole ship? Aliens. Okay. <laughs> I asked the question. You answered it. <laughs> well, I, I want it to be aliens, but I think it's more likely that the ships were made badly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this one was odd. It's the Carol A. Deering, which is a five-masted schooner, and it was found... Abandoned near Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. Oh, weird. And it doesn't really talk about why that has anything to do with the Bermuda Triangle. So this is another sort of expansion of the range. To my knowledge, North Carolina is not within the Bermuda Triangle, unless you decide it is. And it seems mostly that that ship just, uh, you know, broke its moorings during a storm and ended up getting blown ashore in Cape Hatteras or yeah we're we're closer to Chicago than we are to Bermuda just gonna say that yeah (laughs) (laughs) in North Carolina here (laughs) and then uh you know now we are really getting into the radio contact portion of our history like the SS Cotopaxi Departed Charleston, South Carolina for Cuba. Radio distress call that the ship was sinking and then it sank. That's it. I don't, I don't know how that's mysterious except that it happened in the area. Uh, there's another discussion of the Proteus and Nereus. And that actually, according to this, they actually sank during World War II, but near the Virgin Islands. So <laughs> maybe they just shouldn't have had any of these ships, the Cyclops, the Proteus, and the Nereus in the water at all. Right. And then there's a particularly, there are a few more ones that are, they seem pretty straightforward. 
but one of them was really kind of depressing. There's a really there's a really thorough again Wikipedia article about the SSL Pharaoh, F A R O. So the they had a crew of 33 aboard, sank off the coast of the Bahamas on October 1st, 2015. And the reason that it's such an interesting article is because the transcripts of the radio transmissions have been dug through by the author of the article, and they cite lines of it and have quotes from it. And it's very obvious that the weather is worsening, the captain is not waking up the crew, and there were a lot of people who had or who were on the ship who did not want to sail when there was a storm coming, and the captain said, no, we're going to do it. And then the ship sank. So, Sounds like aliens to me. Uh, unless the captain was an alien, he might have been. <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> and then there was one incident listed here on land, and this is sort of material because of a later sort of supernatural explanation. But the Great Isaac Lighthouse in Bimini, Bahamas, it's an island, Bimini, in the Bahamas, two lighthouse keepers disappeared and were never found. And then here's the parenthetical that's important. A hurricane passed through at the time of the disappearances. So, there we go. Sounds like aliens. And, you know, I am going to say about I can move right into the paranormal explanations because I've got aliens first. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just being a, I'm just being silly. It's fine. <laughs> it's it's important to address because it's been part of the story, and so with the alien explanations, there's not a lot of concrete reasoning or specific things to point to, like UFO sightings coinciding with disappearances. There have been UFO sightings in this area, but they very rarely coincide with a disappearance. The incidents sometimes resemble other incidents attributed to UFOs is all that I could really find. And again, I am not a Bermuda Triangle scholar, so this was just what I could find over the past week. But one thing to note is that the Navy has basically confirmed very recently that there have been sightings of UFOs that they have the Navy has no other explanation for. So, hey, maybe? <laughs> Who knows? Another explanation is Atlantis, the lost city of Atlantis. What? I'm confused. Isn't that like, wasn't Atlantis supposed to be in like the Mediterranean? Apparently, it was also maybe in the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. We should probably do an episode just on where did the lost city of Atlantis go? <laughs> so the reason I mentioned the lighthouse incident, other than the fact that it was on the list, is the Bimini Road is an underwater ridge that leads up to the Bimini Island of the of Bermuda. And it was speculated to be a road built by Atlanteans. It is not. It's just a ridge underwater uh, that was formed naturally. But it was apparently assumed that leftover Atlantean technology is the source of at least some of the incidents. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I like that story. That's a cool story. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's a good story. Most of these writings are, are pretty well written. They're very fun to read. And a lot of them are sort of just asking questions. 
they're mentioning that things disappear mysteriously. All the people are lost. The captain was in the in the captain's quarters clutching a cup of coffee and everybody else was missing or there was just a canary on the ship or there were two wreckage sites for a plane crash that were 120 miles apart, you know. Odd happenings. And then a lot of times they'd often just sort of let the reader fill in the blanks, which is a great way to tell a story. It's, you know, and it's an excellent excellent fiction technique because it gets people to think about what you're writing but in terms of like concrete reporting on hard facts it's not a very uh reputable way to do things you know you might want to cite a source or two properly (laughs) so there are natural explanations for a lot of these crashes and incidents and whatever and some of them are kind of weird so magnets The Bermuda Triangle is one of a few places on Earth where a compass will point to true north instead of magnetic north. And there's another portion of the world that has this issue also called the Devil's Sea. The Bermuda Triangle is also sometimes called the Devil's Triangle. The Devil's Sea is in Southeast Asia, wherein there are several strange disappearances similar to the Bermuda Triangle. And this will lead to compasses switching between true and magnetic north as ships and planes go through the area and that can lead to navigational issues and it can also lead to navigational issues even if it's not switching back and forth if the map and the route are based on magnetic north and the compass you have is showing true north and one of the reasons this is particularly problematic in this area well two reasons so one of the reasons is there's a lot of variability in terms of the depth of the sea there are very shallow portions and there are very deep portions and if you accidentally go off of what you think your course should be and into a shoal you can scuttle your ship or if you are flying and you get off course and you're flying in a smaller plane you may end up running out of fuel which is really unfortunate and there may be nothing for you to land on Another partial explanation is the Gulf Stream. It's a a stream of, it's a current, it's a large water current in the area. It's very fast moving and it can actually like swoop ships out of their lanes, but it can also spread wreckage quickly, which means that complete disappearances are only disappeared because of water currents. So it's just spread out. Finding things in the ocean is really hard. It's impressive when anything is found in the ocean in my opinion yeah one of my um co-workers was telling me that in the tropical what is it hurricane or tropical storm that was down south of us actually what did it hit puerto rico recently mm-hmm. like they because of the gulf stream that they were getting stuff washed up from there onto oak island north carolina yeah exactly it just like shoots it up the coast and spreads it throughout the Atlantic. If something shows up in Oak Island, North Carolina, and you don't have modern reporting techniques of, hey, there's a hurricane in Puerto Rico, and you're not going to know where it came from. Yeah. It's just going to be junk in the ocean. There's a lot of junk in the ocean. Yeah. Uh, That's a great segue into weather. This area has a lot of storms. It has tropical storms. It has hurricanes. It just has you know occasional bad weather it's part of hurricane alley and if you don't have up-to-date information 
or you're only using one source of weather information instead of multiple, or if you are being pushed in a commercial setting to work through conditions that are you know, obviously problematic, the weather can take its toll. This next one, actually these next two are sort of question marks, which is kind of a shame because they're both the weirdest natural explanations. Uh, the first one is air bombs from hexagonal clouds. This is a maybe. What? Yeah, it's a, there's sort of two, two prongs to this story. There have been sort of hexagonal cloud formations noted over the Bermuda Triangle and similar ones, although the ones over the North Sea are larger, but they have been noted over the North Sea. The North Sea cloud formations create what are called by some people air bombs or massive gusts of like 100 miles per hour plus and like swift downdrafts of cold air. So just like oh, a sudden okay. like chunk of air whooshing down on you. And this So that happened to to me uh, in our house in uh, Illinois when we lived in Illinois. I was there with a little girl I was babysitting and all of a sudden like this crazy gust of air came down and took down two trees and knocked out our fence and our and the light pole basically in the back of our house. It was really pretty terrifying. I can't imagine being on a ship. Yeah, or a plane either. Yes. Horrible. And so the Bermuda Triangle has massive downdrafts and gusts. I mean, heck, central Illinois has occasional massive downdrafts and gusts. Yes, they do. But it isn't clear whether these are linked to the hexagonal clouds. Some people say yes, some people say no, experts and lay people alike. And when I when you Google this, you just do like hexagonal clouds, Bermuda Triangle, people are pissed at the thought of there being air bombs in the Bermuda Triangle. They are furious at the thought that the Bermuda Triangle mysteries might have been solved. Oh, no. It is. They wanted aliens and they got air bombs. <laughs> it's fascinating how attached people are to there not being explanations for things. And some of the points that people make against the hexagonal clouds and the, the air bombs, as it were, are reasonable but there's a lot of emotion in there and a lot of emotional attachment to that not being the explanation which is interesting and so it's something that meteorologists are looking into basically i wonder if a a, a part of that is that people love magic and that's like one of the last unexplainable magic things that we have as adults, it's like, oh, well, no one can explain it kind of a thing. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I think it. I think it's comforting for a lot of people to think, oh, nobody can explain this. And there might, you know, there might be little green men beaming people up or Atlanteans smashing ships or whatever. <laughs> uh, the next one is also, it, it's a thing that can happen, but it's also a question mark for the area. Uh, water becoming no longer dense enough to provide buoyancy, also known as ocean farts. What? So methane hydrates, (laughs) which are also sometimes known as mud volcanoes, are things that occur in areas of the ocean where methane eruptions happen. And the methane dissolved in the water 
and the bubbles in there can reduce the buoyancy support of water to the point where ships can sink. This has mostly been recreated in laboratory settings. And there is a possibility of such things in the Bermuda Triangle area because there's you know, large methane deposits in the crust of the earth in various places. They've actually, uh, there have been methane eruptions, I forget if it was Java. Java might have been the giant volcano. Anyway, in we'll go with Asia. In Asia, that's a nice big area for me to rely on. Uh, <laughs> there have been methane eruptions that have actually suffocated people to the point where they've killed hundreds of people. Oh no! Yeah, it was. It's really depressing to read about. But the U.S. Geological Service does not know of any of these occurring in the past fifteen thousand years in the Bermuda Triangle. Now, the Bermuda Triangle has only been defined since probably 1950. So we'll see whether, you know, it's a possibility that the U.S. Geological Service missed one, but they don't have, they don't have like a deep political or emotional need to make sure that people don't know that this is why there have been ships sinking at the Bermuda Triangle, you know. So uh, one probable issue was World War II enemy activity. Like I said, a lot of the disappearances happened in the 40s, and there was known and unknown activity in the Atlantic Ocean with maritime engagements, and some losses may be attributed to such. And then good old human error, which is probably the major source of issues. No, it's aliens. (laughs) There, there are a lot of structurally unsound ships and planes that are on the scene in the air worldwide, and several Bermuda Triangle disappearances can be explained as structural failure, particularly the, the Cyclops, the Nereus, and the third sister ship. What was the third sister ship's name? Proteus. And all those ships were lost due to structural failure because of too heavy a load. So it definitely happened. There was also is was and is a major vacation destination area, and people sailing or flying in pleasure craft might not be properly prepared for the conditions they experience. They might not have enough fuel in their planes or overestimate their uh, gas mileage. They may not uh, know how to handle themselves in you know, fluctuating depths of sea. They may have issues with their compasses and not quite understanding how a compass does and does not work in that area. Then there's also the unpredictable weather, which I've kind of already discussed. There have been several voyages and flights that have involved launching when the weather seemed okay, only to have the weather worsen quickly, or to have, or for people to have relied on old weather reports. Like I said, this is exactly what happened with the SSL Pharaoh. And you can... You can both hear and read about the worsening weather and, and the radio contact from the ship to land about the worsening weather, about the ship filling with water, uh, about the crew not even being woken up until, I think it was 12 minutes before the ship sank. Oh my God. Yeah, it was. it's kind of a gut-wrenching article, but it is indicative of like some true negligence going on and i'm not saying that everybody that sinks or is on a a sinking ship is negligent but it does happen i would be so pissed 
if I went down in a ship, like, and nobody told me, I would totally haunt the Bermuda Triangle. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that does, you know, lead back to our ghost episode. I should probably do a ghost ships episode as well. But when tragic things happen in an area, even if it's a gigantic 500,000 square mile area, it's something that people who believe in paranormal experiences think leads to ghost activity. Yeah. So who knows? It's probably just bad weather, but it's fun to explore other ideas while acknowledging that, Hey, this is a fun idea and not something that uh, I need to change my life plans to work through. (laughs) I like how you put that. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with reading fun stories. It's just how much credibility you provide them. And that's where Bermuda Triangle disappearances go, mostly to the bottom of the sea. That's amazingly in-depth. Wow. And the hexagonal clouds, like, I still don't understand what that means. So, like, are they shaped like beehive hexagons? Kind of. I think... That's crazy! I think hexagon is generous. (laughs) I think that uh, (laughs) it would make more sense to call them, like, spiderweb clouds or something like that. Uh, They are not as rigidly, visibly defined as a honeycomb. But, hey, it's it's something that people could recognize. Uh, and so I'll post a picture on our social media. Uh, okay. And that's... I'll actually... I'll text you a picture, too, since obviously you don't need to wait until I edit this episode to see what I'm talking about. You know what? I could look it up myself, too. <laughs> I mean, you could, but... but why? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to text it to you. <laughs> oh, okay. So... And it's, it's really funny, it's really, really funny, uh, sort of reviewing all these explanations because people are deeply attached to either there being mostly sort of metaphysical explanations or mostly strictly physical explanations. There are not a lot of people who are like, hey, maybe it's like a mixed bag. Yes, and you can visit us on com, and we are both on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us there. If you want to email us, we are wheredoesitpodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And contact us. Give us ideas. Tell us how awesome we are or whatever. Tell us why you believe in the Barbuda Triangle and you were there and aliens took you and not your canary. tell us about clutching your coffee cup in your cabin of your sinking ship exactly